Good morning. I have so enjoyed uh, some of my personal reading of marriage these last couple of months in preparation of speaking to you. And if you missed last week's sermon, go on our podcast and listen to it. We talked about covenant marriage instead of contract marriage. God's called marriage to be a covenant. And uh, this is more than just a series. This is a calling for us. We want to help enrich marriages that exist and we want to help prepare those who are single prepare for marriage. And last Sunday night, among our leadership team, we had a marriage enrichment that was a first fruits, kind of a first step to offering more opportunities for all of us. For those of you who are married, uh, look out in the future for some marriage enrichment opportunities. For those of you who are single, uh, we provide premarital counseling as God leads you into that. Marriage is important uh, because God was the one who started marriage. And if you think uh, past our salvation, there isn't really anything I can think of more valuable of a gift that God's given us. Yet the enemy wants to, he wants to attack marriages. And, and we talk clearly about that. I mean, marriage isn't easy. It's hard work and it's challenging and it takes endurance and it takes effort and it takes intentionality. And so I think we're all aware of that. And as our future unfolds, our church, we want to walk with you. So your marriage is stronger. Your future marriage is stronger. But today I want to expand the meaning of marriage to address a very important issue. Because while the enemy is attacking marriage in a lot of practical ways, we're also dealing with a current identity crisis that our grandparents, great-grandparents Never could have imagined. And so today I want to uh, lovingly make a case for what is known as traditional marriage. And a better way to put that is biblical marriage. And I want us to look at that because it is so important that we go back to not what culture is saying and not what the latest trends are. But we go back to scripture. There's a whole lot of confusion right now in culture. Culture changes. Culture changes every couple of years, honestly. And so we need a standard. We need something we can count on. We need something that's transcendent. And that's why here at our church and in our faith, we, we use the scripture as that which is something we can rely on. That, that isn't affected by the cultural norms or, or, or some temporary condition. And so I want to show you some scripture today. And and I want to show you some scripture. Knowing this is that we don't always interpret the scripture correctly. And as years go on, we see that. And there are some ambigu- ambiguities in the scripture that we are not able to understand without the Holy Spirit's help. But I think you're going to see today that the scripture is very clear that marriage and covenant marriage is only between one man and one woman. And that's God's plan. And that's what God wants us to affirm. And I want to present this information in a mature and loving way. I don't want us to, I don't want us to um, be trivial about this. I understand that there are, there are those who struggle with homosexual behavior. And we're going to address our attitude towards homosexuals because our attitude towards homosexuals will also affect our view of marriage. But we're going to jump right into the scripture. And there are six instances that I know of where the scripture directly 
directly deals with homosexual behavior. Three of those are in the Old Testament. Now, at this point, a lot of people would say, well, that doesn't really count. We're not going to read those today, not because it doesn't count, but for brevity. And I would say this, it is true that some Old Testament laws we don't apply today. Some of the dietary laws, some of the the laws that are very particular for, for those people, for the Jewish people. But when it comes to sexual ethics, the Old Testament makes a list of certain things that you're not supposed to do sexually. And if you go back and you read some of the Old Testament, some of the things on this list, they're things that you may have never even thought of before. I mean, it's kind of universally agreed upon. Yeah, that, is, that is, should be on the do not participate in list. Well, that also applies to homosexual behavior. So I don't think it's fair to say, well, we're not going to look at the Old Testament. We're only not going to look at that today for the sake of brevity and to focus more on the New Testament scriptures. Now, right away, those who support gay marriage will often say this. They'll say, well, Jesus never said anything about homosexuality. And in some ways, that is true. He did not overtly, at least not that I have seen or that I know of, that he never talked directly about homosexual behavior. But he did speak directly about marriage and covenant marriage. And God's intention for marriage. So the first scripture I want us to look at today is Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. These are the words of Jesus. Verse 4. Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female? And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, man must not separate. So Jesus affirms the original intent of really creation. God created two different genders for a very distinct reason. He created two different genders because the male and the female complement one another. And when they come together, they come together for the establishment of God's purpose in the world. That's one of the things we discussed last week. Covenant marriage is something that blesses the world. Sometimes we wrongly just think of marriage as only for fulfilling our needs. Like, this person will make me happy. That's why I'm getting married. There is wonderful happiness in marriage. And I thank God for that, but that's not the reason I'm married. I'm married because I'm called to, and God has called me to be in covenant with this woman here. And so it is that male and female were called to be in covenant together from the beginning. And Jesus was very clear, so even though he didn't talk about this directly, he certainly established that marriage was between one man and one woman. Now let's go to Romans chapter 1, because we're going to see here a clear description that that God believes homosexual behavior is a sin. And this is really the strongest passage in the Bible talking about homosexuality. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 26. This is why God delivered them over to degrading passions. For even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The males in the same way, also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts 
with males and received in their own person the appropriate penalty of their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a worthless mind to do what is morally wrong. And that's not the most comfortable scripture to read out loud with a group like this. But I'm so glad God was very clear when he inspired this word. He didn't really make it ambiguous. He was very clear in his descriptions that the behavior, not the temptation and not the attraction, because there are some that will struggle with that. We're mindful of that. But the active behavior, unrepentant behavior is outside of God's will and it is a sin. And I think you've seen with me today, God's real clear about that. The second passage in the New Testament that deals directly with homosexual behavior is in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9 and 10. It reminds us that we know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent. Now it goes on to kind of give this list of different types of sins that oppose God's law. For those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So you see, and we can keep that slide up for a second. You can see that this isn't like an exhaustive list. This is a list of like generally these things oppose God. And yes, homosexuality is there. But I hope that's not the only thing that jumps off the screen or off your Bible. Because I see other things too. Things like lying, perjury, sexual immorality. And I just want to remind you that sexual immorality in in our minds, that, that applies to heterosexuals too. It applies to what our eyes see, what our minds entertain. That's sexual immorality also. So this isn't just isolating one class of sin. And I'll just say this is, it's a reminder to us that yes, even though homosexuality is a sin, uh, it, it's not a sin that's so isolated, that's so different than other sins. The Bible does say that sexual sin is different, but that applies to adultery and lust and fornication that heterosexuals participate in. And we do. We sin against our bodies when we sin that way. But the point is this. is The point is that homosexual behavior is a sin, but so is a lot of other stuff on the list. Homosexual behavior is a sin, but it's not something higher and exclusive category than any other sin that's ever existed. So it is that that's the scripture. But I want to talk to you a little bit about the tone. Because now that you've, you know, seen the scripture and you've seen it with me and there's some, some clarity, at least in what the Bible says. And so if, you, if the Bible is some kind of standard for you, then you, you at least have to respond to that uh, mentally or emotionally. But when I first moved to Tennessee in 1995, um, I went to, in West Tennessee, it was a kind of a rural type of youth rally. I had youth and adults there, a lot of 20-somethings and there was a real fiery preacher. And this guy, man, he was, he was preaching hard and he was funny and entertaining. And he was kind of hitting some of those issues that would 
incite the crowd a little bit. And so when he was dealing with some of those issues, uh, homosexuality came up. And in my opinion, his delivery was really immature and not very helpful because he demeaned homosexuality in an immature way using um, slander and slang that wouldn't help anyone who may be struggling with that uh, give them any hope that Christ's love was there for them. And it wasn't any kind of critical analysis of the situation. And I remember on the front row, kind of in this area to your left, I remember two, two guys who stood up as the crowd is kind of going crazy, laughing, and they stood up while the rest of the crowd sat down and they gave each other a high five. And, and it was just really odd. It made me think... Wow. I mean, what if someone really was struggling with same gender attraction? What if there was someone who didn't know the name of Christ and didn't understand Christianity and they were participating in this? And even though you've read the scripture with me, that the Bible does show clarity in what the scripture says. I think that we as a church over the last 30 years, the immature way we've dealt with this issue has caused us to lose some moral authority in presenting God's truth and love. And that's just one example of ways that we've giggled and we've joked, but we haven't helped and we haven't loved and we haven't reached out. So why is that? Well, I've already mentioned immaturity and a lack of perspective, but I want to give you just a short little history of the homosexual movement in America. I'm a history nerd, and so I try to spare you guys as much as I can. I only use it when I think it's really helpful. But the 1960s changed America. A lot of good things happened in the 1960s. The civil rights movement was a great, great thing that happened that showed racial equality and God's plan for that. But the sexual revolution happened in the 1960s, and there was free love and free drugs and things that were... Um, once just kept for the bedroom were now being publicized and celebrated publicly. And it was out of this environment that something happened in 1969. It was in Manhattan, New York City, Greenwich, Greenwich Village. Uh, there was a place called, uh, if you can put that picture up, it slipped my mind right now, Stonewall Inn in Manhattan, and it was a gay bar. And there at Stonewall Inn on this particular night in June, the homosexual men uh, got in a fight with police officers, a few police officers, and kind of they rose up and went from the bar into the street. The next day, um, other homosexuals responded, and they began to chant things like, come out into the streets or come out of the closet. And that was the beginning of, of homosexual activism in America. And the next year, in 1970, the first gay pride parade happened. And now these happen all over America. Here's a very mild representation of that. But the idea behind this was homosexuals would say, uh, we don't want to hide our behavior. Uh, we want the world to know who we are. And this was uh, a reaction uh, to years of, of trying to subdue their behavior and hide their behavior. And so what often happens is these actions of, of bringing out... Uh, the bringing out this, their behavior into the streets. The church also reacted. 
And the church reacted, not just with this issue, but with many other issues. The church reacted in in the late 70s and early 80s. The religious right in the evangelical church rose once again. The silent majority, as Jerry Falwell was the leader of that. And a lot of good things came from that as Christians began to stand for their rights and stand for, for, begin to um, be active politically. Some, like anything, some good came from that and some negative came from that. But the vocal majority began to speak and the Christian coalition came out. And part of the results of that was Christians began to protest against the homosexual community. And this picture here is a little idea of what happens. Unfortunately, the other pictures that I saw were very much more negative and and dark using slurs and slangs that would be hurtful. So Christians, instead of engaging and getting to know the homosexual community and trying to be the love of Christ and trying to uh, trying to let them know that Christ loves them uh, became very militantly opposed and and very aggressive. And this tone, I wanted to go through the the history of that so you know that from the beginning, out of response to the homosexual community being so uh, abrasive, uh, so outlandish that that the church responded in fear. Um, in shock, and that has been the beginning of some of the misunderstanding. And there has been a gay agenda, you've seen that through the media, to make homosexuality just more common part of who we are. Now, like it or not, statistics say that pretty much if you're under the age of 40, you don't really have a problem with homosexuality. If you're over the age of 40, this is a huge generalization, um, you're not as comfortable with it. And I've seen that there's usually two types of Christians. Uh, Christians who have met a homosexual and Christians who really haven't. And all of these things affect the way we respond. So here's my point. My point is to make this. is I believe the one thing that hasn't changed is what God says. I believe that the church, our tone has been wrong. Our emphasis has been wrong. But we can stand on God's truth and stand on what God's revealed. And we could stand for traditional marriage and still not be mean. I think that's the biggest concern is people today say, well, I don't want to be unkind. Or I don't want to be uncivil. Or I don't want to be mean. And because of that, we haven't critically looked at not only what the scripture says, but, but how, how the, the loss of Biblical traditional marriage is going to affect culture. And I'd just like to say this. I think you can, and we can, and it's certainly what I try to do, stand on God's truth, stand on God's word, and still be loving and kind and share Christ's love with homosexuals, not only in our community, but those as far as our, in our city, but those who are struggling with same-gender attraction right in our church. And God can allow us to do that. In other words, we can stand for what God says, and we don't have to be jerks about it. We, we can stand firmly for what the Word says, because there's ramifications that are important. You know, a sermon like this isn't exactly fun for me to deliver. I'm not one of those guys who are like, all right, I get to preach on this. Man, this is going to be fun, because I know that it's hard for many people. I'm sympathetic to some of the issues. It breaks my heart for teenagers who may consider 
suicide or have suicidal thoughts because they're having a, a gender crisis and, and not understanding who, who they are. And I'd say to that, why can't we as a church stand on God's truth and simultaneously be a loving arm for those teenagers or adults who may be struggling with that? For too long, we sent the message, we're not in. It's interesting that we're willing to struggle with people through a lot of different types of sins. We'll struggle with people, we'll, we'll struggle with people when they're drug addicts. We'll give them chance after chance. We'll struggle with people who are divorcees, multiple divorcees. We'll struggle with people who are gamblers. We'll struggle with people who are religiously self-righteous. We'll struggle with those who have a perpetual problem with alcohol or who can't get free from pornography. We'll, we'll struggle with them. We'll say, yeah, the church is open for you. But when it comes to those struggling with the homosexual behavior, sometimes we'd rather make fun of them and criticize them than to let them know Christ's love is here. And so I think that our tone, our tone is so important because there is an objective truth. I don't often, I usually don't even bring a book with me, but a Bible, but th this, this is objective truth and people need to hear it. Just like I need to hear about the sin in my life. I need to hear about the things that I'm doing wrong. So our response, that's the third category. I think God is calling us to respond in a new way because of the shift in our culture. Instead of militant opposition, where slurs and hate and distrust is given, that God could call us to a compassionate opposition. where we, we, don't, we don't ignore his scripture. How could we? we? We don't try to cut out a significant parts of the Bible, not, not just a small part of the Bible, but something that Jesus confirmed and that was both in Old Testament and New Testament and say, well, that doesn't matter anymore. No, no, we stand on the truth, but we do so in a loving, affirming, redeeming way that gives people hope. That's why I think one of the most important scriptures we understand is the last scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. In your notes and review, unfortunately, it just says 9 and 10, but 11 so important. So if you're making notes, make it 9 through 11. It says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexually immoral people, adulterers, adulterers, every kind of homosexual, thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbal abusers. Let's just stay there for a second. Now, as, as you're looking at that list, uh, yes, the term... The homosexuality is there. Man, but there's a lot of other stuff there that's being dealt with in this room also. Sexually immoral people. Idolaters. Think about the idolatry we have with our money, our sports, our worship of famous people. Adulterers. Thieves. Greed. America doesn't have any problem with greed, do we? Drunkenness, being me, a lifestyle of being a drunkard, verbal abusers, swindlers. The Bible said, "Don't none of these people, none of these people inherit the kingdom of God." You know what the problem is? I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people. Some of those things on the list I've participated in. But look at the next scripture, verse 11. I love this. And some of you used to be like this. 
Did you see the hope in that? But you were washed and you were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Hey, this idea of this church at Corinth, who this letter was written to, was a highly immoral church. A church with all types of sexual perversion. And obviously, with homosexuality, that's not just, we know that from the scripture, we also know that from historic research. But the scripture's saying here, we used to be like this, but we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The idea is this, that 2,000 years ago, when this scripture was written to a particular church and a particular congregation, that they were a church that had former homosexuals who were part of their church. And they did that through the gospel, through the message of Jesus, and through the love of Jesus. So I think about, about our sinfulness. You know, and I don't know if you've ever had sin of anger or sin of greed. Have you ever sinned by not serving your wife or by speaking too harshly to your kid or by not being honest with your money? I mean, sometimes we lie when we don't even mean to lie. We just lie because of our sinfulness. When you were in whatever sin that is, how did you want the church to respond? Did you want to be made fun of? Did you want to be mocked? Did you want to be... Isolated, or, or did you want to be welcomed or loved? I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew seven twelve. Therefore, whatever you want others, Matthew seven twelve, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them. This is the law and the prophets. Remember who our God is. Psalms one sixteen five says it this way: The Lord is gracious and righteous, and our God is compassionate. The Lord is gracious. And righteous and our God is compassionate. So here's what I've tried to do in today's teaching. I'm trying to point out the biblical, the biblical clarity that homosexuality is a sin. I've also tried to point out that we ought to stand for truth and love the homosexual community and the friends that may even struggle with same gender attraction or who are in a lifestyle that they need to... to Repent of. But having said all that, now let me bring it back to the origins of the sermon, which is traditional marriage or biblical marriage. I just want you to know this. You can be full of love and be kind to the homosexual community, but not support a new definition of marriage. I think that's one of the biggest issues that we're in. We don't want to feel unkind. We don't want to feel mean. There's even been that phrase, we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. And I would say that don't let your sympathies or your love keep you from standing from what's not only biblical, but also what our culture and our nation needs. The ramifications of a new definition of marriage are very, very negative. There's no stop if we change a definition that's happened for centuries and centuries. There's no stop of what that definition could be. And I believe that homosexuals should have civil liberties. And that they should not be wrongly um, 
discriminated against for, for no good reason when it's outside of a private organization. I, I believe that they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be targeted. They, they should have rights and liberties as an American citizen. But that doesn't mean the definition of marriage should change. Because if you change the definition of marriage, it has effects that we can't even imagine today. I really, I really believe that. And that's why I bring this up today. That we can be loving and compassionate and kind to the homosexual community, but it's not, it's not at the same time, uh, not support gay marriage. And, and I would encourage you to consider that, to look at these scriptures, to pray about it, and allow God to lead you in that. And I also would encourage you to do this. Is, it's so easy sometimes with uh, other people's sin to point, right? And, and, you know, when the old saying reminds us when we point at someone else, we had three fingers pointing back at us. And just looking at those lists that we looked at, these scriptures, sure, it calls this behavior sin, but also calls a whole lot of other stuff. Most of us participate in one time or the other as sin. And so what does this whole challenge right now in our, in our, in our culture, what, what does it lead us to? I think it leads us to introspection. It leads us to repentance. It leads us to self-examination. It leads us to judge harshly the ways we're not really obeying God's word, the ways we're not standing up for the things of God and say, God, we need you. I mean, some of the songs we've sung today says, God, how I need you. And I realize this, that when we begin to look at what God says, says is sin, it helps us realize our own sinfulness. Would you stand with me? I thought a great appropriate way to close this message because I want us to consider this message and consider these scriptures with great humility with great humility not with pride not with arrogance not even with fear but with great humility as we look at this issue and realize that for every behavior that opposes God's law we need his grace we need his grace and it was his grace that saved us in the first place. It's going to be his grace that sustains us. It's going to be his grace that's going to strengthen us to do his will. It's his grace that causes us to be his love extended to every sort of person he wants us to reach out to. It's his grace upon our nation and upon our churches and upon our institutions that we need. Undeserved favor of God. We don't deserve his favor, but because of the richness of his love, we've received his grace and we've received his favor. Can we worship him as we sing about this amazing grace?